Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Before we get into today's really interesting interview with Jamie Redford, I want to talk a little bit about things we've got coming down the pipeline here at Experts Only. Clean Capital is proud to host a live recording of Experts Only at the 6th Annual Solar and Storage Finance Conference in New York City this October 29th to the 30th. You can get the website and a discount code to take part in the event at our website, cleancapital.com. So today's conversation is with Jamie Redford, the co-founder and chairman of the Redford Center, which is a nonprofit media entity that engages people through inspiring stories that galvanize action around the environment. Jamie made a fascinating film. It's part of an HBO series. It's it's called Happening, A Clean Energy Revolution. We'll discuss the film, but it looks at the dawn of the clean energy era and focuses on the job creation, the benefits, the profits, the community, making community stronger and healthier across New York or across the United States. Of course, he filmed in my beautiful hometown of Buffalo at one point. It's a must watch for anyone in the industry and for those that are trying to take action and helping people understand what they can do to help move clean energy and climate solutions forward. Go to the redfordcenter.org or redfordcenter.org. You can access the film and things you can do to take action. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us at Experts Only Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. You obviously have an amazing background. You've done some really incredible work in film and in advocacy. But, you know, I sort of want to step back and ask, you know, what garnered your interest in, in climate and climate change and clean energy issues? Well, it's really sort of a lifelong thing. I wouldn't say it's in my DNA, but I sure grew up around it. You know, my parents in the late 60s and early 70s were very engaged in consumer rights and environmental protection. My mother had an organization in New York City called Consumer Action Now to help consumers make more eco-friendly decisions in their purchases. My my father was uh, using his newfound voice as a, uh, a movie star to advocate for protecting wild lands, particularly in the American West. And increasingly, he became interested in alternative energy. In those days, of course, the big issue was the oil embargo in which oil supplies seemed uh, shaky at best. And But clearly, you know, cleaner energy, less pollution to the environment. And then I kind of watched over the years as, as they both moved forward. And, and my dad's interest increasingly became around something called the greenhouse effect. He'd been exposed to that topic at a conference in Colorado at NCAR and was staggered to see already that there was mounting evidence. And mind you, this is back in the late 70s, early 80s. Right, right. So jump forward to 89, and he went to Russia at the invite of Gorbachev during Perestroika to introduce his work there and use the opportunity to bring some American climate scientists over there to meet with Soviet scientists and discussed this thing called the greenhouse effect. Wow. And at the end of that meeting, there was a decision to come together in the States and sign a joint resolution saying, hey, this is a problem. And you've got these two superpowers uh, that are in the midst of perhaps cooling, but a uh, cold war, perhaps warming, but they came together in the States and they actually met at his ski resort at Sundance, Utah and signed a joint declaration in 91. And it went absolutely nowhere. Right. 
the politics were wrong. George Bush the first. And it was too early, too vague. People just weren't buying into the, the science yet. The public wasn't really engaged on it. But it really stuck with me because I saw firsthand, you know, when you see Soviet scientists and American scientists staring at each other with interpreters and looking each other in the eye and nodding and saying, uh-oh, um, it stays with you. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, the years went by and like a lot of people, I think it was just bubbling around in the background. And then, of course, Al Gore came along in the mid 2000s. And in fact, he stopped at Sundance Resort to do one of those presentations that was in Inconvenient Truth. And it was just one of those moments, I think, for a lot of people. And for me, I left the theater saying, well, my lease was going to be up on my car. And I thought, well, this is when we're going to buy ourselves a Prius. Right. And, it was, you know, and, and, and at the same time, of course, I'm developing it by the mid 2000s and increase increasing interest in documentary filmmaking. And I had started out as a screenwriter, uh, writing many screenplays and doing a few features for TV and film. And by the mid 2000s, I was gravitating away from that because I was feeling more of a desire to tell stories that could make a difference. The entertainment business can be fun, but it can also leave you feeling somewhat empty at times. So by this time, the, the Redford Center had formed, which is a nonprofit that was created to inspire and engage citizens to be more connected to the environmental challenges that we face. And one of our core concepts was that how do we work in solutions to give people a, a sense that it's n not always lost? Because we felt very early on right. that the, the, the alarm bell, and, and by the way, I've made a number of documentaries that had alarm bells. I made a, an HBO film called Man Be Bored, which looked at the poisoning of a Native American community in New Jersey by the Ford Motor Company, who was dumping paint waste in abandoned mines underneath their town oh. that needed to be exposed. I made an HBO film called Toxic Hot Seat that exposed the chemical industry's campaign of mis misinformation to keep flame retardants in our furnishings when they don't work. So I know the alarm bell, and I know that it's important, but when it comes to climate and environment, the Redford Center decided to pursue a niche avenue around trying to give empower audiences to feel like there was a reason to be engaged. And we wouldn't have done that if we didn't feel some of the best documentary filmmakers out there are ringing those alarm bells. It's being done. Yeah, absolutely. My wife always says so, that, that her biggest challenge, and we live it every day. I mean, this is what we, what, what I do for a career, and, and she's obviously engaged. It's like there's many times she's, she feels, she doesn't want to feel hopeless. She wants to feel like there's an action she can take to drive the stuff forward. Yeah, and you'll see in the Redford Center, you know, I mean, first of all, the Redford Center, we, we do three things. We, we make our own original productions. Our first one was an unlikely cadre of citizens in Texas who fought the coal companies and won. And the next one was a trip through the desert Southwest to show how we could better take care of the Colorado River, which was drying up and it created this huge desert in the Mexican Sonoran Desert. And that led to a very successful campaign in raising money to bring water and life back to that delta. So happening was an extension of this. It was, it was to focus on America and really show what's actually happening. Let's get away from the rhetoric on both sides and see, is this clean energy uh, movement real? Can it work? Is it working? Is there a future or not? And honestly, when I started the film, I, I really wasn't sure. Right. 
Yeah, I want to get into the film in a second. I, to, to stay in the Redford Center just for, for, for a minute, one of the things I, I love mm. about what you guys do, so I, you know, as we sort of talked offline, actually, before I went in the Army, we had what school to be an elementary education major, right? And we actually work with schools. We have solar panels on schools all over the country and work to engage not just uh, as owners of solar panels, but to do things like providing curriculum that they can actually use as solar panels and, and educating their their students and with the redford center for folks that don't know it's redfordcenter.org you have actual programs for schools to take things like the film and teach it to six you know to grades six to twelve and here's tools that they can use to help educate people on what's happening that's that's such a powerful tool for for a teacher to be able to take that and show it to their students well there's no doubt in my mind and and for the rest of us at the red center and the executive director joel tidman that those kinds of programs are ultimately what make us most excited. You know, we have just this year, we started something called Redford Center Stories, which I think you're, you're probably referring to. And it's our first year in which we're working with school districts and teachers. To, we've created a program that, that teachers can join. And there's a curriculum there. And it comes with a software, clip software, that kids can use on iPads. The idea is, what, help kids tell their own environmental stories. Yeah, I love it. Um, every, every community has their own issues and kids, you know, engaging kids and engaging their curiosity and their, and their, and frankly, their fascination with media just seems like a great way to go. And, you know, we're hoping this program will continue. We also have special sponsorships for any young filmmaker that's starting out working in the environmental space with the solutions aspect to their project. I mean, obviously, you can't ignore the problems, but we have a keen eye out for young filmmakers. We also provide grants every other year right now. We're hoping to move to annual Redford Center grants for young filmmakers that want support to do a proof of concept so they can get out there and get that project funded. So spreading beside, beyond our own productions, really, it's really the only way to go. Otherwise, you're using too much time and resources on a singular project, whereas what we're really trying to do is propagate this message. Yeah, I'm going to connect you when this is over to the, a group called Project Green Schools, which is actually uh, working uh, uh, working across a lot of the school districts in the country. It created a network of them that want actions, and these are the exact type of actions that they are looking to provide teachers in, in school districts. This is wonderful. 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 So Great. I do want to talk about the film here in a second, but before we do that, just what, what you were talking about earlier, just flashing back to your dad visiting Russia in the late 80s, you know, having a signed, a signed document as early as 1991. Here we are almost 30 years later. You know, the, the Al Gore movement came in the, the mid-2000s, created a, a moment in time where there was a possibility of action. You had legislation passed in the House on climate and then fail in the Senate. And then things seemed to, to die away because of the, the unbelievable sort of counterattack that came from the status quo there to fight off the, the climate legislation. But we've been talking a lot on the show about the fact that we're sort of living in a second climate moment where there's now a consciousness on this issue that is so broad and so strong, whether it be through the millennials or or others. We're seeing this at the presidential debate level we've been playing out today. And we need to continue to capitalize on that moment to continue to drive action. And I think your film uh, happening, uh, Clean Energy Revolution, helps provide a tool for that and helps provide a tool for folks to go and talk to others, which I do want to talk about more. But when you made the film, first of all, what was that experience like traveling the country to places like Buffalo, where I'm from, and 
and going out to some of the going out to the wind turbines. You know, what what was that experience like as a filmmaker? Well, you know, it's always inspiring to meet people who are just simply on the ground doing good things without a lot of fanfare. And, you know, what you see is that there are so many wheels turning making this economy, this new economy work. And it, so it's not just some, not like there's a bunch of people out there with green capes on, waving wands over everything. I mean, this, this thing is happening on a daily basis at the community level, at the institutional level, at the civic level, um, all because the simple ep- economics are there. And so when we, you know, we could have gone to hundreds of places when we were trying to figure out where we were going to go for this film. My bias, personally, was to go places that were a little bit unexpected. You know, you could have made a film entirely set in the northern half of California about the gee whiz aspect of renewable energy. Right. But I didn't feel like that would speak to the broader audience, who tend to be... There's a fair amount of Americans that think of Northern California with a, with sort of a squinty eye for right. a lot of reasons historically and otherwise. But, you know, so that's why we did things like we went down to the Navy in San Diego, very conservative, very conservative place. And you see that for all kinds of practical and strategic reasons, they're embracing clean energy, both on their fleet and on shore, where you go visit a mayor outside of Austin, Texas, in the middle of oil country, who has nonetheless decided to take his community to 100% clean electricity. And why? Because he's some radical in the middle of nowhere that somehow waved a wand over his community? No, it was better economics. He was able to lock in a better rate for a longer period of time, end of story. Or even going to some place like Buffalo, I think a lot of Americans tend to think that, oh, that city that was once this great steel town and uh, the heavy industry town and had its former glory. To go there and see that Buffalo, in my mind, represents the potential for a lot of, of cities that had an earlier wave of economic growth in terms of how Buffalo is renewing at the community level. And I feel like the Tesla factory in Buffalo exemplifies what can happen in some of these communities that are in the middle of renewables. So for me, that it was really about trying to cover the entirety of the country and so that people could feel, could have more access to the story. Yeah, and I feel like you there was a great coverage of obviously the human story and the, I think some of the social justice impacts of it, but also, you know, the actual phenomenal economic impacts that are happening, you know, to quote uh, someone in the film, you know, we've actually done a whole series on this program about solar jobs. You know, Solar Today employs more than Google, Apple, and Facebook combined. And in the wind industry, a lot of those jobs are in rural America, where wind turbine technicians are places where those turbines are built, and they're not in metropolitan areas, right? They're, they're rural communities that are getting these really great paying jobs. Yeah, there, there's, there's a heavy irony that our, that our current president is doing everything he can to destroy this momentum. I mean, I don't, most people including myself, thought, well, he's, he's not going to be as strong as Obama and Pratt. You know, we sort of had a, a sense that there was probably some prohibitive things going to come into play, but it's been far worse than anyone could have imagined. And yet, if you overlay a map of Trump country, meaning those counties and communities that voted for Trump in 2016, with a map of where the job growth is going to be in the renewable energy economy, they're very similar. 
Yes. And I think what you're going to find over time is that the Trump administration is going to get caught holding a bag that they don't want to hold, which is being so anti-clean energy and anti-climate change. I think that's going to be a, a serious deficit for him as he campaigns in 2020, because these, these jobs are growing. You know, they, they could grow faster, and I think there's a lot of things we could do to accelerate the transition, particularly for people that have worked in coal mines or oil wells. You know, I think there's a lot of things we could do to help transition so that these jobs can sort of turn over more rapidly. But clearly it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the industry needs to honestly step up its game a little bit on the politics of it. I mean, we're seeing today in North Carolina, there's a great solar executive running in North Carolina 9. And you have the the National Republican Campaign Committee is running anti-solar ads literally happening today. And there, there hasn't been any pushback yet from the industry. And, we, you know, it's we need to have a mindset of an industry that is similar to, you know, that of the American Petroleum Institute, where, you know, they, they've really got aggressive, they set their game up, and they helped communicate to people why what they were doing was so important to them. And, uh, you know, your film helps with this. I love the fact you, you talk to conservatives in the film and help them tell the story of why it's important to them, because I think other conservatives need to hear that message as well. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I grew up, uh, I was born in New York City and, and my schooling was there and lived there primarily during my childhood. But my mother was born and raised in Provo, Utah, in Utah County, the reddest county in the reddest state. And uh, long family connections to the, the state of Utah. And of course, many friends and relatives that are conservative. So I think sometimes people get in their bubbles and they tend to sort of create a sense of otherness to anyone that doesn't hold their own political beliefs. But I, I don't see that. You know, I see that there's, there's all kinds of commonalities and, and wonderful shared life views that have nothing to do with our politics. So I think it, I just felt like it was important to do that. And, and again, I just feel fundamentally that, you know, the anti-solar and the petroleum industries have done a very good job of politicizing this. Absolutely. And so you have to fight that because all the polls show that overwhelming majority of Americans think clean energy is great, as do the overwhelming majority of Americans believe in climate change. But not talking down to people, not coming in with a holier-than-thou attitude, being aware of what the biases are against progressive elites, all that's very important. Yeah, and it's important for, for those in the, the, the industry and those advocates in the industry also to, to get outside their comfort zone. And, you know, there's really interesting organizations out there that are they're conservative organizations that are doing interesting things to help move these issues forward and, and calling out some of the hypocrisy they're seeing in, in their own leaders, like the Green Tea Party, for instance, which is really interesting and, and fascinating on so many levels. And what we, what I would love to see more of is, is our leaders in the space that go and have those, get out of their own comfort zones to engage folks. Because that's how we're going to drive action, right? In, in places like Kansas and in, in Texas, where they're traditionally our states. But if we go to them and talk to them about, like they did in, in South Carolina, in Florida, about how this is actually a conservative issue, we can help drive them to action. Yeah, you think about the word independence. I mean, to me, that's a very red-blooded word. And that's a word that the conservative mindset can really get behind. Self-reliance, independent. Right. What could be more self-reliant and independent than promoting battery storage? 
both at the home and community level. I mean, we've got, I'm sure you're aware, Tesla has this new product they rolled out a month or so ago called a Mega Pack. I mean, if, you, if, if anyone listening to this cares to go on Tesla.com and look at the Mega Pack, you see this brilliantly designed, massive utility scale battery system, easy to install, far more efficient than previous generations of, of battery storage, far more prepared to be integrated into any existing system. And, you know, what does that do? It just creates far better resilience. And, and the, the irony for me is that as we are now rolling into the era of climate change, we're not, we're not anticipating anymore. We're now into it. It's going to be increasingly important to have energy independence because we're going to have all kinds of weather-related events that threaten the way we power our lives as it's currently structured. So, you know, the irony is that renewable energy, which can, you know, stave off uh, the worst of projected climate change is in the short term going to become a very important tool in fighting the climate change we're already feeling. And I think that's an argument uh, you can make to anyone because, say, for whatever reason, say for political pride, you don't want to acknowledge that climate change is man-made. But you are acknowledging that, that you now live in a, in a high wildfire area. You know it. You see it. Or you see that, you know, the risk of flooding has greatly increased or high temperatures causing blackouts, all these things. Those are not political realities. Those are our new daily realities. Right. So creating more efficient, more decentralized, more independent energy systems is going to benefit everybody and should speak to everybody. So I do want to talk about sort of the, we're living into this climate moment we talked a little bit about earlier and we are, you know, entering the, the political campaign season that's really ramping up aggressively here and will continue as the, the parties start to align themselves. And, you know, how do we keep climate on, as a front burner issue here in 2020 uh, so that no matter who ends up in the White House and obviously many of us hope there's a change, that climate continues to move forward? Mm, good question. Well, on the Democratic side, of course, you have an interesting contrast, because I think, generally speaking, there are those that are absolutely in support of, of clean energy and, and positive climate policies, but see it in a more incremental fashion. But then you've also got folks within the Democratic Party on the left that see it as the linchpin to a whole scale change in how we govern our lives. Right. And, you know, I think as a Democrat, I would say I think a lot of, a lot of us find ourselves in a quandary over this thing. I certainly don't want that issue to become a, a something that splits the Democratic front, something that causes, you know, within the Democratic Party, a lot of strife or alienation, because ultimately everyone wants the same thing and is willing to work towards it. It's sort of the how. And we just urge in the, you know, I feel like in the primary season, we should be really careful here. Yeah. And with be careful about using this issue as a cudgel to distinguish your individuality because you're just creating ammo for the general election when you do that. And I think it's really important to keep in mind more broadly what it is that we want, where we want to get. I'm a little concerned about that. More broadly speaking, clearly the number one, the most important thing is to have a different president in office. Right. Far right. none. And it well, just comes down to that. Yeah, I absolutely agree on that one. We're seeing today, just while we're recording today, Governor Inslee is backing out of the campaign. 
And, you know, he was a pretty singularly strong champion for climate. And it'll be interesting to see of the next phase of the campaign and how the issue then begins to settle in with, with others that are obviously passionate about, but didn't make it the single issue that he did. But, you know, we've got to, I personally give him incredible props for helping to drive the debate forward on it. And, you know, it'll be really important to see what happens here between now and the primary, the rest of the primaries as, as the, the singular, I think, lead on us back, but how this issue continues to grow because so many Americans want to see action. Yes, I do feel like you do. I think the other thing to keep in mind, uh, you know, this is a very unique primary season for the presidential campaign. There's right. so many people. But uh, what I, if you step back and really look at it, you see that as the particulars around who's proposing what and who's gaining traction, who isn't, overall, there's been far more discussion about active change at the federal level around more climate policy. And I think that that's going to, as this works its way to our final candidate, that that's going to stick. It's going to be there. It's, it, there's, it's been proven that this is a, a very important issue to voters. You know, and I can't help but think on the other side. I don't know if you caught this a couple of weeks back. It was a very curious moment with Lindsey Graham, who by all accounts is a you know, close ally of Trump on every front. But he took a moment to suggest that the president, quote unquote, look more deeply into climate science. That's and right. I thought that was a really fascinating moment in time. What is going on? And if Lindsey Graham is anything, he's a political animal. Right. And so what you see there is somebody who's identifying a weakness. He's basically saying, you better be careful on this one. And if you're hearing that from Lindsey Graham, then that's telling you just, just how broadly this issue is playing with the American people across political lines. That's, that's a fascinating analysis. I feel like, I mean, he was really the third champion with McCain and Kerry for the Senate climate bill over 10 years ago, but then for the most part, it'd been relatively uh, quiet on the issues. And, you know, he can hopefully help, I think, read the, read the tea leaves here for, for the conservative movement moving forward. So we only got uh, probably one more question left. And, you know, I traditionally talk to folks and sort of re- we reflect back in a second, but you know, what I, I really loved about your film, I want to quote one of your characters who said, you know, change doesn't, just doesn't happen. You have to work at it. What actions can people take with the film to help educate people on these issues? Is there, is there things they can do through the Redford Center? Are there actions they can host screenings? What do you suggest for, for people who are listening? Yes. If you, if you go on the Redford, if you go to redfordcenter.org backslash happening, there's a whole list of, of small but important things we can do. And I think that as much as anything, you know, sometimes people feel, oh, God, this is so big. I mean, you know, this is something that involves an entire planet hurling through space. So it can feel very alienating. But I think what you'll find is that if you just break it down, I mean, I've always felt that way, even making my movies or making any difficult decisions, just breaking things down into phases or steps. And the first phase is find something that just appeals to you. I mean, we really shouldn't be asking people to do things that are deeply unpleasant or unaffordable or out of reach or that just seem completely impractical. You want to create a window in. And there are all sorts of suggestions on our website. Uh, Even, you know, a lot of places, even in Northern California, which has one of the best community solar programs in the world where it is, it is relatively for $6 extra a month, 
uh, you can move to 100%, the equivalent of 100% clean energy. Only a small percentage of people in my county, Marin County, have signed up. It's awareness, it's education. And, you know, taking five minutes to, I think most people would be very surprised if they just took a moment to look and say, do I need to buy, clearly, purchasing solar panels and doing these things are, are obviously the peak action at a consumer level. Getting out of gas-powered cars, that's going to get increasingly obvious, easy, but still right. uh, prohibitive to a lot of people. But taking five minutes to go on a utility company's website, because a lot of them have this option. They don't, they don't promote it because they're not a fan of it, but they've done it for other reasons. <laughs> Small things like that where you just switch over, and if millions of people do that, the impact is, is profound. And likewise, there's just, a lot of, there's just a lot of little things to be done. But I think particularly when you have so much uncertainty at the federal level, I think the important thing to do is, is work in your own community because, you know, politics, in spite of everything, for the most part, it starts from the ground up. Community right. organizers become council members. Council members run for state rep. State rep runs for Congress. Congress runs for Senate. So creating in your own community an engaged citizenry and doing what you can at the very local level, I, I'm a big believer in. Well, thank you. And I, Jamie, I'll ask you a final question I ask everyone who's on the show. And if you could go back and sit down with yourself coming out of, of high school and college or and have a, have a beer or coffee, you know, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Mm. Well, don't write screenplays. Yeah. That was a 20 year departure. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> um, aside from that, I think what I would say is when you start out as a young adult in life, uh, every, everything seems very internal. You know, you're, you're really trying to make your way in the world. It's a time of high uncertainty. You've left home. You've left the structures at school. You're trying to figure out a job, a career, trying to figure out how you're going to live your life. And the tendency is you just don't have time to look outward into the social fabric surrounding you. And I, I wish I had done more at a, at a younger age because oh, it feels good. The people I've met along the way and, and being a part of what the Redford Center is doing, you know, when I, when I go to meetings and I, and I tour around and I meet community members and I meet people, it affirms our better selves, you know, and I just hope people take that moment to, to get engaged in their own communities. Absolutely. Well, th- Jamie, thank you so much for, for the time and, and your, the amazing, impactful work you're doing, both through, obviously, the happening, but through the, the, the Redford Center as, as well. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And for folks listening, you can go to redfordcenter.org and, and access the film. You can access the uh, school curriculum we've talked about. And please feel free to share uh, the episode out. And I'd like to thank, uh, as always, our, our producer, Carly Batten. And please go to cleancapital.com to get further episodes and reach out if you've got ideas and folks we should be talking to. You know, I really look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.